Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of those elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You'll see that the theme of this chapter is worship of the Lamb, the worthiness of the Lamb, the worship of the Lamb. And I want to tell you just a little bit about the scroll And then we're going to talk about the Lion of Judah is revealed. And of course, we'll end up with the uh, surprising hero of the story. This scroll, we we don't identify with the scroll very much in our culture because we have books. Now, if they'd have said, there's a book, and the book is somehow sealed. We don't have books that are sealed, but somehow sealed, and they couldn't open the book. We might get a visual of what this was about. But this was a scroll that was very much in keeping with the technology of the day. Parchment that had been written on. 
this scroll was written on both sides. It indicated that it was an unusually large document. They typically did not write on both sides of the scroll. There might be circumstances under which they were forced to write on both, both sides of the scroll. The volume of what they had to say could not be contained on one side. And uh, the scroll had already been cut and you couldn't just add another scroll so they just wrote on the back of it sometimes. It became uh, a, a larger message than they had intended. So there's something about John noticing that the scroll was written on both sides that meant something to that culture. They'd see a scroll written on both sides and said, there's a lot said here. It's not a short letter. A lot of content here. And the scroll would be rolled up. And as many of you are probably aware of how they did things in that time, in that culture, uh, hot wax would be put on the edge of the scroll, the, the final edge, and dropped on there. And then they would take like a, a signet ring and put a stamp in that wax so that the wax couldn't be taken off and other wax put on. It was authentic. As long as it had that seal on there, that wax seal and that uh, signet, stamped into the wax. Then when the scroll is delivered, they can look at it and say, nobody has tampered with this. So in that culture, if there was a document that was uh, com confidential and only to be opened, for, like for your eyes only, then they would seal it and nobody could tamper. When they would look at this, read this story about what was going on in heaven. That was what those people in that culture were thinking. This is a highly sensitive document. This document has no business being opened by anybody who is not authorized. So the challenge is thrown out. And just to heighten the drama of this whole scene, somebody in heaven poses the question, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And as we read this, it might be tempting to read this in terms of physical strength. Who has the strength to be able to break this? Nobody is strong enough to break this. But what it's talking about is the authority. Who has the authority to do this? Who is worthy? That's where the key word is. Who is worthy? Now you see in the rest of the chapter, if you was paying attention when we read, this chapter is about the worthiness of the Lamb. That all is built around the opening question, who is worthy? And then it is repeated, the Lamb is worthy for many reasons. So John hears about this, this, uh, uh, this challenge that goes out, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And he writes down and notes that in heaven, in earth, under the earth, nowhere, no, nobody was found was worthy. Because the worthy one had not stepped forward yet. But other than him, the search had somehow been made. They'd come to the conclusion, nobody. Now, if, if I can get you to relate to your dreams. Dreams are funny things. They don't make any sense. At the time, it might make sense. But when you wake up and think about it, you think that was the silliest thing. What did that mean? Now, I was just telling my wife a couple nights ago, I was having a hard time sleeping. And when I woke up, she said, how did you sleep? And I said, I didn't sleep very good at all. I, I had these weird dreams all night long, multiple dreams. And every time I was dreaming something, it was all about aliens and monsters. And I, 
I wasn't afraid of anything, but it couldn't make any sense. Uh, what are these aliens doing here? And what's that monster doing on that rooftop? And there's no house under the roof. And it, 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 and it went on from one bizarre thing to another. So when I wake up and trying to decode this, I'm thinking, this is stupid. But in your dreams, you seem to understand things that have never really been explained. There, there's just, you just, you know. Though nobody has set the, the, the scene for you, you just know things. So John, in this, this is not a dream. But in a similar way, nobody has explained to John in this state he's in. He just understands that there's something very, very critical about the book being opened. Now, it's not like somebody has explained what's in the book and why it has to be opened. It's just in that state of mind where you understand details in your dreams that have no explanation. He understands. It is critical. This book must be opened. And because it's so desperately critical, it must be opened. For whatever reason, he understands that. When he finds out nobody can open it, he is weeping. He is wailing. The Greek word there it just indicates the deepest kind of travail and weeping that you can imagine. So that's what John is doing. He is distraught. Nobody is found to open the book. And then somebody comes to him and says, don't weep. For the lion of the tribe of Judah can open the book. When we look at what John did, we can pause there just for a minute and say, is there any takeaways from this? And there really is. Because John was weeping for the apparent loss of hope. He was facing what felt like a hopeless situation with all of those things put together to him that represented like hopelessness. I grew up in a Christian family. I've believed in God ever since I understood the concept of there being a God. And I've believed that you could go to him with your problems. And he, would, he answers prayer and he loves us. We can have a personal relationship within him. So, so for, for me, I've never known the hopelessness of thinking there was no God. But there are people in this world that do not know God and do not understand that he loves them and he is available to us to be our comfort, our guide, our strength. They don't understand this. And they face difficulties in life and trials and they don't have any hope. So I don't understand hopelessness, but there are hopeless people in this world because they don't understand the hope. Now, if John is driven to despair because of hopelessness, I wonder if we are moved to compassion. I wonder if we have moved to despair for those who have no hope. Because that ought to drive evangelism. Why should we tell the good news to people? Because they don't have any hope. And if that impacts us like that impacted John, that should kick our evangelism up to another level. Don't you agree? If you suddenly become keenly aware that your neighbor has no hope, shouldn't that drive you to despair? He's saying, we've got to give them some hope. We've got to tell them there is a God that loves them, that cares for them. There's one worthy. This lion, the lion of Judah, it, the contrast is breathtaking. The concept of, of uh, a, a lion 
And then when he says the lion of, of, of Judah uh, is worthy, John said, and I looked, and he didn't say, there was the lion. You got to get hold of this. The lion of Judah is worthy. And I looked, and behold, a lamb. Now, when I read this, I thought that this obscure little cartoon that I saw when I was just a child, there was a couple of cartoon characters in a laboratory. One was a tall, skinny guy. One was a, a short little guy. And they were always creating and doing experiments. And I, I can't remember the whole premise. But I remembered the, uh, in one episode, they, they were introducing the beast. And they described a, a little bit about the beast. And, and then they unveiled the beast. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the beast. And the curtain was lifted, and there was a little bunny rabbit. The beast. That, that had such an impact on me as a child. I just, I, I thought of that over because it was just, the, the, the contrast was shocking. I'm thinking as they're talking about the beast, some hideous, huge, powerful thing. The beast. I'm 64 years old. Every time I see a bunny rabbit, I think of the beast. <laughs> Things... <laughs> There goes a beast. Now, you think bunny rabbit. I think there goes a beast. Things like that can have a lasting impact on you. John is comforted. Don't worry. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. He can open the book. And I looked, and there was a lamb. A lamb was not a lion. The lion is revealed to be a lamb. See, ancient Jewish literature used the image of a lion often in referring to the Messiah. Actually, the origin of this concept comes from clear back in the 49th chapter of Genesis. This is where we get the first indication that of the lion of Judah. So I'll go back and read that for you. Judah, and this is, let me tell you the setting here. Jacob is blessing his sons going down through the 12 sons. And he comes to Judah. You can go back and read the blessings on the other sons, but this is the one that is important. He comes to Judah, and he says, your brothers will praise you, Judah. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? And then he goes into this prophetic part that he doesn't even understand how this really applies to the coming Messiah. But he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So he goes from blessing Judah who he likens to a lion, to talking about the scepter shall not depart from him until Shiloh come, until Jesus comes, until the Messiah comes. Now, Jacob didn't understand what he's saying, but speaking prophetically, we understand the application of that. So therefore, from that, as the Jews begin to decipher that prophecy, they begin to understand this mysterious somebody who was going to come and be the consummation of all things. And he would be the lion of Judah. He'd be the extension of Judah. So throughout Jewish literature since that time, they made frequent references to 
the Lion of Judah. It was their hope. It was what they were looking forward to. They were wanting to see the Lion of Judah. And then when Jesus came, their Messiah came, behold the Lamb of God. They were not under the impression that this lamb was the lion. It can't be. A lion can't be a lamb. They are totally different personalities. So no wonder the Jews missed the lion of the tribe of Judah that was to come because they were looking for a lion. And what they got was a lamb. Now this is the great paradox of Scripture. It's only one part of the great paradox. We expect a ferocious lion. We get Jesus, the Lamb of God. He's triumphed. But he, he didn't come and triumph through military might, physical force. He came to conquer death and hell and the grave, and he triumphed. But he triumphed through dying. You would think triumph, winning a war, has to be by force. He didn't come and triumph by force. He came by dying in the process. You don't think that the winner of the war wins by dying as a part of the conflict. The paradox, it continues. And it was that, that moment whenever he died that Satan thought he had won and the grave thought it had prevailed. And Satan had waited thousands of years for the showdown. And with Jesus in the tomb and the tomb sealed, Satan was convinced he had won. Satan is also called a lion. That roaring lion that roams to and fro on the earth, seeking whom he may devour. So through the ages, it comes down to converge on this one point where the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lion of hell are going to meet. Who wants to see a good lion fight in the wild? Who's going to be the king of the jungle? Who's going to prevail? So here comes the lion from hell. Here comes the lion from the tribe of Judah. And the lion from hell has the lion from heaven, the tribe of Judah, in a tomb. Lifeless corpse is there. And of course the lion of hell thinks he's won. But he prevailed by conquering death. Who, who would have thought that? And this, this paradox where God has consistently baffled the world by doing things exactly the opposite of the way you think he's going to do it. He uses the weak to confound the mighty. He uses the foolish to confound the wise. He uses the lost to turn to victory. He gains the victory by letting Satan think he's got the upper hand. And then when it's all said and done, lo and behold, the one in the tomb is the one that is conquered. Because he conquers death. He conquers hell. He conquers the grave. And so he's the one that whatever they say, don't worry, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He has prevailed. He is worthy. Why? Because he's a lamb. And the lamb was slain. And the lamb was resurrected. And the lamb is the victor. It's an amazing story of how God works. We talked of Gideon a couple weeks ago. Gideon thought he needed a bigger army. God said, I think you need a littler army. He just does everything so totally opposite of how we think he ought to do it. It drives me nuts. 
I'm just going to be honest with you. I keep wanting God to do it my way. I've got a plan, God. I know how you and me can work this out. And God throws my plans away. He said, I've got other plans. Well, God, if we go around this, how much life better, better it be? And God grabs me by the hand and says, no, we're going through it. He's always got a different way, doesn't he? And his way always works, and it just dumbfounds me. How can it be so opposite of our wisdom and our understanding and still work every time? This lion who turns out to be a lamb, the, the real lamb behind the lion, it, he had seven, he seven horns and seven eyes. And it's, it's symbolic language, understand this. But it means something. And it's always connected with the power of God when it's used in symbolic language, used in reference to God. It's always connected to the power of God. John saw seven lamps before the throne in the previous chapter. It was the seven spirits of God. And the seven spirits of God were representative of the power of God that emanates from heaven and encompasses the whole earth. So here he sees a lamb. And again, the, the, the significance of the seven is talking about the power, the authority of the lamb. Seven eyes and seven horns and the complete authority. Because after all, he's worthy. He's powerful. And he's described by this full uh, description of, of power that he has. So over 500 years earlier, there was a man named Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was in the lineage from whence would come the Messiah. Zerubbabel was a descendant of David. He had a right to sit on the throne. The problem is the enemy had taken the throne away. There was no throne to sit on. Babylonians had come and taken them uh, captive and destroyed their nation. And there was nothing there. But out of the goodness of their heart, the Babylonians said to Zerubbabel, we'll at least let you be the governor over the territory that encompasses Judah. He's governor over Judah, thanks to the kind Babylonians who had taken captive and taken away their country. And eventually they were, they were released to go back to Jerusalem. And Zerubbabel had this, this, this driving desire, this calling, this burning on his heart, I must Restore the temple. I must restore the temple. And he and the high priest Joshua, not the same Joshua that was in the wilderness, another Joshua. He and the high priest Joshua, they together, they had this desire to rebuild the temple. So given the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem and the governor of Judah who has every right to be on the throne, he is in the line. He says, God, I want to rebuild the temple. This, is, this would be pleasing to you. This is a right and godly thing to do. So God gives him a vision. And Zerubbabel looks up and he sees this, this, this lamp stand with seven lamps on it. And these tubes, these channels, these conduits that are running from this bowl of oil on the top. And the oil feeds each one of these lamps. And on the side are two witnesses standing the sons of oil, if you would literally interpret that, the two sons of oil. And Zerubbabel looks at that, and he sees this lampstand that's burning and supplied by a heavenly 
uh, supply of oil that cannot be uh, depleted. And these anointed sons of oil standing there. And Zerubbabel says, I don't understand. What does this mean? I don't understand. Who are these sons of oil? Who are these anointed ones? And it really what they were pointing to was they were pointing to Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the man with the heart to rebuild the temple. And God says, these two witnesses, he said, here's what, he said, who are these two witnesses? And this is the answer God gave him. He said, I want to tell you that this is the mystery solved here. That you understand by this oil that's flowing down here and these two anointed ones, that what you're going to do, it'll be not by might. It'll be not by power. It'll be by my spirit. Says the Lord of hosts that you will be able to do this because the Rubabel says, I don't know if I've got the resources. I don't know if I have the strength. I don't know if I have the wisdom. It's not by might. Not by power. It's by my spirit saith the Lord. And how did the Lamb prevail? He didn't come with armies and conquer this world. He didn't come with the angels of heaven and conquer this world. How did he come? The one Lamb that had the seven eyes, the Lamb that had the seven horns, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's how the Lamb prevailed. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. So the Lion is revealed. Not only to be a lamb, but to be a lamb that had obviously been slain. That's what John notices. He said, I saw a lamb. And it is quite obvious it had been a slain lamb. Why did he bring that out? Why did that matter to him, the lamb that is slain? Because not only is the lion an unlikely lamb, <laughs> who thinks a lamb is going to go out and be the king of the beasts but it was a broken lamb a slain lamb who, who would think a slain lamb would be the hero what John sees is the unlikely hero of the world of the universe now I, I like those underdog stories Hollywood taps into that every once in a while, don't they? You see a movie where it's the underdog that becomes the victor. The, the series of Rocky shows, Rocky movies that became increasingly worse every time they made one. Started off with a great premise, the underdog. Up against the great polished, honed fighter, champion of the world. And somehow the underdog becomes a victor. It appeals to people. They like that story. And it's told in several different variations of stories. But you want to know the ultimate underdog story? You want to know the ultimate story of the unlikely hero? When the lion is revealed to be a lamb. A lamb that was slain. There is no other story that even comes close to the lamb is the victor. Who would have thought? The lamb that was led to the slaughter. Who would have thought? He would be the victor. He would be the dominating one. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that that lamb who went head to head with the grand champion of hell, that ruthless predator from hell, who would have thought the lamb would win that battle? The lamb versus the lion. It's the ultimate underdog story that has ever been told. 
and the lamb that is slain by the lion from hell. And it doesn't look good, but three days later he burst forth from the tomb in glorious victory, and they stand in heaven who was worthy to unseal the book. And the elder says, don't worry. The lion of the tribe of Judah can do it because he is the lamb that was slain that conquered the grave, conquered death, conquered the hell. And because he conquered that, he alone can open the book. So the theme of this is he's worthy. And aren't you glad he is? Heavenly Father, thank you for the worthy lamb.